Hey guys, Danny here, Courier's Editorial Director. You're listening to The Courier Weekly. Today on the show, we're with Josh Lakovic, the founder of wine subscription company The Wine List. A bit later on, Josh and I talk about new areas in wine to watch, the pros and cons of subscription models, and how global warming might change the game in a big way. But first, I'm with a cultural curator, creative consultant, entrepreneur, and investor, Nicole Krenzel. Nicole's the CEO of Black Girl Fest, a platform for black women, girls, and non-binary people. And she's the founder of Big Sis, too, which is all about supporting the personal development of creative working women. But she's also just been made an angel investor as part of the angel program of Ada Ventures here in London. Over the next year, Nicole's looking to invest 50,000 pounds in startups. So I thought we'd talk about the angel investing community, what she's looking for in an investment, and any advice she has for would-be business owners looking to raise some cash right now. Here's Nicole. I never really saw myself as an angel investor. I always felt very far removed from that whole ecosystem, being from my background, where I'm from, and the fact that I don't have any immediate family or friends who are angel investors. I've always felt like it was this exclusive club who only invited people with a high net worth, who had all this money to spend on businesses and to invest in founders. I think what's really great about Ada Ventures and the work that they're doing, not just through their scout program, but through their angel program, is that they're making a lot of this far more accessible to people like me. It's funny because they support and they fund underrepresented founders and markets. And I feel like I am both that person from that underrepresented industry or as a black woman navigating the space. And I think what's interesting right now is that as tech industry and as well, the investing space is trying to become more diverse. The same conversations keep coming up and keep us going in this weird repetitive spell of, oh, we need to invest in more diverse founders and we need to have more black VCs. And it just, things just keep being talked about over and over again. But I think what's really great about Ada Ventures and what they're doing with the Angel program is that they're actually putting action to those words. They're actually saying, hold on, if we can train and support and nurture a bunch of new angel investors to actually be a part of the, the system and give them the capital to make those first investments, then we're actually changing the system. We're changing just from being having the same conversations over and over again to actually putting action to those words, which I think is really exciting. And there are lots of other amazing VC firms who are doing exactly the same thing. And I think collectively from where we were like many years ago, I feel like there are incredible people and firms and a new generation who are really trying to push that conversation further to see that new change so that it's possible for people like me to confidently say, angel investing, I didn't think it was possible for me, but look where I am. What we'll hopefully see more and more of people who have never probably even heard of this space are now being welcomed into the industry. Yeah, because I read a stat that said 90% of angels in the UK are men and even more like 93, 94% are white. So it just makes business sense, right? I mean, to, I mean, what on earth does a 60 year old white guy know about a 20 year old black woman's consumer demand? What kind of things are you looking at? I mean, what do you want to invest in? What sectors, what kind of brands and companies and founders? Yeah, I'm really interested in working with founders who are black, brown, and based in London, but also not based in London, across the UK. I'm looking into Generation Z founders and those who come from the LGBTQ plus communities and also those who come from a social economic background that isn't common for founders who are building. First time founders 
who are pre-seed, but definitely those who are kind of navigating either the beauty industry, consumer-based industries, definitely, but I'm definitely more interested in beauty, food, tech, or anything that is community-focused or involves community building. The one thing that I think I learned from Andy's angel investing school, which we took part in, is the role of an angel investor and how for a lot of angels who have loads of capital to kind of put on that big ticket. For others, it's really about what they can offer to founders in terms of advice and knowledge and networks. Many angels obviously sit on boards, they advise and they work closely with founders. And I think that attribute really aligns with who I am personally, in that I love supporting my community and helping and guiding founders anyway. So being able to do this from an angel perspective is like really exciting. And it means that I can offer whatever skills or access or networks I have onto founders that I'm really passionate about working with. It's also realizing that, and I think that's what I came to realize about the program is that you're in it for the long haul. You're in it for as long as the founder's in it for, and you go on that journey with that founder to help them build this incredible business. And so that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for founders who are in it for the long haul, who want to work and are eager to get stuck in, but founders who are really passionate about the markets that they're navigating, who not just only understand it, but know how to navigate through it. I think that's the most exciting thing. I will honestly say that I'm, I'm not really interested in fintech because I don't understand it. <laughs> and I think it's important to kind of say what you are interested in because you understand that industry and what isn't really of interest to you because it kind of just goes over my head. I kind of have an amazing network of angels that I'm now meeting who I can kind of share different deal flows with. But yeah, that's kind of my main interest right now. What advice would you give to those guys who are, they might be, you know, an early 20 something founder who has a really great idea, not that much access to capital, maybe not many mentors. They're kind of new to the entrepreneurship game, but you know, that shouldn't stop them and hold them back. What would you say to them What's some advice you would give them and tips? How do they wow you as a potential investor? I think one thing that even I as a founder was kind of oblivious to, when you're starting up, there's so much eagerness to raise as much capital, get as much money. And time and time again, when we see some founders who have failed or whose businesses haven't been that perfect unicorn, they always say, the one piece of advice they always say is that I shouldn't have raised so quickly. I shouldn't have asked for that much. And we just went, too quickly we grew too quickly that we couldn't manage and we missed loads of steps and I think that's the absolute dream for a lot of young budding founders it's to you know launch this business next thing you know you're like high flying but I think I always try to reiterate that it is not a race it's a marathon that you have to be in it for the long haul that to have really successful businesses it's not to raise and exit as quickly as you might think it is because that doesn't happen for everyone really doesn't it only happens to the really really special unicorn businesses but it's to enjoy the ride it's to build networks find a community of people of other founders who you can rely on if you're just a solo founder for example I've always found that to be very helpful people who I can share things with and just get advice from Mentors are also great, but I think sometimes also speaking to other founders really, really helps. Understand alternative routes to raising investment. Why VC? Why angel investment? Why not bootstrapping? Find out what works best for your business as opposed to going down the route that you think you should just go down traditionally is another thing that I think founders should definitely think about. 
one more thing as well is that I know that a lot of founders sometimes think about this, but sometimes it goes in over their head when, when they're approaching VCs and they're approaching people like me, is you have to really think about your why. As big as the markets and as big as the markets are and as profitable as your business could be, why do you think your product or your service is necessary? What does it really add to an ecosystem that's already got so much happening inside it? And I think that will answer a lot of the questions for the way that you want to work. And it always challenge you. It will challenge you as well constantly, like, why this? Why this product? Why now? Why this market? It will definitely challenge you to think slightly bigger and change your approach in the way that you're speaking to grants or VCs or angels or wherever you're receiving that investment from. I think it's a combination of all those things. But I guess for every founder, it's different. It's, it, you have various different ambitions and sometimes you are sitting on that unicorn and you do want it to go be successful really quickly. But it's like being on a roller coaster that is way too fast, that has no brakes, and you've got a whole bunch of people behind you throwing up and it <laughs> and then the roller coaster ends and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, time to get off, and it's just crazy. Nobody really, really enjoys it. It's just the thrills, right? It's just remembering to really enjoy the ride. And that was my chat with the business owner and investor, Nicole Krenzel. Next, as promised, we turn to wine. Josh Lakovic is founder and CEO of The Wine List, which launched just over a year ago in August 2019. It's a monthly subscription wine service with an educational slant, and it really took off during lockdown. It's been doing so well, actually, that Josh is now raising money and hiring for five new roles on the team. We catch up on everything from canned wine, which he says is a growth area to watch, to global warming. But first, I wanted to know what he thought about the pros and cons of the direct-to-consumer model. Here's Josh. There's definitely been that kind of backlash on the kind of D2C side of, you know, I think, I can't remember who it was in America, but there was a big piece about the D2C blends, as they called them, which was, you know, everyone has pastel colors and kind of huge blocky serif font logos. Yeah, it was a big Bloomberg piece. Yeah, it was a Bloomberg piece, exactly. So, you know, there's definitely some parts of that kind of backlash, but it seems to be kind of quite cordoned off and it seems to be part of the, the kind of tech community talking about themselves a bit. And, you know, our customers don't seem to kind of care about that sort of thing. But what about the financial implications of having customers on a subscription basis? I mean, you know, the rise and fall of, of incoming revenue, what that means for your bottom line, is it sustainable? On the subscription side, and you know, my background's basically in subscription marketing at PAX uh, years ago and then Thriver just before Winelist. And both those companies kind of subscription businesses, as is ours. The huge benefit of subscription is recurring revenue. Wine is a very competitive space. The margins aren't as big as they would be for quite a few other things which you might sell online, you know, far, far lower than spirits, for example. So, you know, you could have a strict e-commerce store with spirits and probably break even on your first purchase if, you, if you're if you really smart with your advertising. With something like wine, that's far harder to do. And so you rely on that kind of subscription revenue to, to kind of break even after that first purchase. So lots more kind of uh, modeling involved in kind of how to work out what you can spend. But yeah, broadly, kind of subscription does have that kind of really good benefit that you're going to carry on getting revenue from it. I also think that, you know, the subscription boxes as well, starting to have a bit of backlash to them. But you look at kind of the big products which we use in our life, you look at, you know, Netflix, you look at Amazon Prime, you look at anything like that. They are subscription models. They're just kind of put about in a slightly different way that we 
see them as different from a physical subscription gift you might get. So yeah, I think there's still longevity in them. I think you're going to have to be smart. So you can't just stick a nice brand online and put recurring on a button at bottom. I think the backlash is more things like, you know, do you really need a subscription for your toothbrush kind of thing? Well, no, you just go to the local store for that. I mean, you could get that, but I think it's these kind of quirky single product things that you don't want to have 60 subscriptions for individual consumer packaged goods to your house. I mean, nobody really wants that. Wine, though, I imagine it's one of the things where, well, maybe your local Tesco doesn't have the wine that you want. It probably doesn't. So, you know, a subscription might be an interesting thing. Yeah. And also, you know, we are a wine course as well. And that's kind of, it makes a lot of sense for us to be a subscription because it's, you know, something you get in kind of modules every month. And yeah, you know, the kind of the notion of a wine club is probably one of the oldest subscription models in kind of modern consumer goods. You know, they've been around for, for decades already. So yeah, I think it suits it. I can definitely see why a lot of those smaller goods might have a backlash to them. Do you think your company is is one built on the pandemic? Do you think the company could have been what it is now without the past six months of coronavirus? I think we have definitely benefited. You know, our growth was accelerated because of it, but it's not the kind of the reason we are where we are, or it's not the reason we will succeed. It was lucky timing and the fact it accelerated it. I think, again, if you look at what we are as a product and a service, we are £39 a month. As part of that, you get a couple of bottles of wine, you get parts of a wine course. If all you really wanted to do was get some nice wine sent to you, there are cheaper ways of getting that done. We're trying to improve the, the service side of our offering. We're trying to improve the core side of our offering. And that's where the value comes in. You probably could have built a very successful pandemic-driven business, which was just cheap wine delivered to you quickly. The reason customers buy from us is much more wide-ranging than that, which is why ultimately we'll have longevity to us, even though the pandemic gave us a boost. And I think I did ask you this half a year ago when we, when we caught up last, but do you see any other opportunities in the e-commerce wine space that you're not fulfilling right now that maybe other people could whatever you can think of i mean whether it's a physical product or it's a way of selling do you know what i've discovered probably the last six months is there is a lot more going on in wine than you think there is once you kind of know the landscape a bit better you notice when new entrants arrive and it's an incredibly competitive space and there are lots of things kind of going on as either kind of side projects or maybe you know I don't know, wine shops, which have put a subscription on top of the pandemic or something like that. But there's also a lot of innovation too. And I think for one of the probably more exciting areas where it still hasn't been done right yet, or is it kind of close to being done right, but not quite there is on canned wine. We all buy wine in bottles, even though they're glass, it's a pretty unenvironmentally friendly way to actually ship wine around because glass is heavy. Glass has to get transported around the world. And yeah, then the kind of cost of recycling is kind of not insubstantial for it. Canned wine is far better for the environment. I can't remember what the exact percentage increase is, but it's a much higher percentage increase. Kind of cost of getting into the country can be lower because you can import huge containers and then recan it yourself. So yeah, there's a few kind of canned wine companies emerging at the moment. They all kind of have reasonably good wine to them, but I think it will almost be a brand which kind of breaks out of that mold, kind of e-commerce brand, which will kind of break out. And I think there's not a dominant player yet there, but there will be probably in the next year or so. Does the established wine world look down on such a development with, you know, horror? Not that it matters, but I mean, is that seen as like, oh? Do you know, I think almost all wine is made to be consumed within realistically like a year or so of it being produced or if it being bottled. You know, the arguments against 
bag and box or against can or against kind of screw cap going back you know a couple of decades was that they don't age well so corks are useful because they help slowly oxidize the wine over years and years and years which is useful for old school big red wines which need aging that's not true for most wines and so you definitely still get the, the kind of cohorts of people who for whom the idea of selling wine that's you know just everyday drinkable wine why kind of bother with it and those people do exist for our skeptics for sure on the broad side it is a very kind of yeah as i said quite an innovative industry even though it takes a while to realize that you know you have to really step inside it to kind of see the innovation and i think there's a lot more kind of receptiveness to that than uh, you'd probably initially see from the outside in the last couple of months we saw a huge backlash against a few particular natural wine brands that you know were proven to be not have the most ethical supply chain and some of these brands are brands that you'd see, you know, at your local bottle shop, you know, really Instagram-friendly brands. Natural wine, is this going to just keep growing and growing and growing? Is this just like a fad that you think will kind of blow over in a couple of years? I think natural wine is a, there's always that kind of curve, I can't remember what it's called, but the curve of, um, you know, when things kind of hit huge popularity, then kind of go back down and then eventually adjust back to their, their kind of true points. And I think we've probably hit the, the first inflection point for natural wine and there's going to be an adjustment of what it is. You know, lots of people have probably heard about it more kind of, you know, people outside of the early adopters have probably heard of it now. Yeah, I mean, every new wine bar you see is now, you know, small bites and natural wine. It's not even old school wine and everything is natural wine now, at least in big cities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, you know, a lot of those wines, if you're used to drinking conventional wine, you're probably not going to like them because they're going to taste funky or they're going to smell of nail varnish or, and they don't have to, but a lot of them do. And so I think that's going to kind of put people off you know, I remember the first natural wine I ever had was at Bianca and Hope about eight years ago. And as I ordered it, they said, have you ever drank natural wine before? And I said, no. And they said, okay, well, this is going to taste a bit different to usual. And it was a perfect introduction to it because, you know, you actually, you were set up to understand something to be different. Whereas now we're in a state where, oh, it's natural wine and you kind of drink it. And there's, there's a disconnect between it being different and the way you're actually having. So I think there's probably an adjustment going on at the moment. I think ultimately it'll be here to stay. I think the shift towards more sustainable agriculture and sustainable farming and sustainable methods in the winery are wholly good things. But, you know, it can't forfeit quality of the products at those those things expense so yeah i think it's here today i think there'll be an adjustment of understanding about it within popular culture but yeah long term i'm long on natural wine what about perhaps finally you know global warming i know it's affecting a lot of vineyards all over the world will that shift production to certain countries in any way that you can predict right now it's a really tricky one i think you know you look at 2018 in england we had our kind of vintage of a century and that was because of global warming we've had hot years but we also get far more variability to them we had frosts in may this year which is a very late time to get frosts and frosts once the buds have already burst on the vines is terrible for them so lots of people had crops affected will have had lower yields and things like that so it's not a stable heat and you know you look at kind of Napa Valley, you look at Australia at the start of the year, you know, two of the big kind of wine producing regions have had huge fires effect from this year, which is the other kind of side to, to global warming that, you know, you've got established areas which won't be able to grow wine or have higher risks to them in the future. So I think it's going to make everything harder. But from my perspective, uh, you know, if we are to, you know, it sounds bad to take a positive from it, but it will kind of create new regions and people who previously not had sustainable livelihoods will be able to kind of build them because of better grape yields and things like that. And the hotter countries will have to adapt. 
But the taste of wine will probably change in all these different regions. You know, Bordeaux won't taste like the Bordeaux we knew it to be 10 years ago. Do you think those brand owners are becoming activists to prevent, do a very, 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 very small little uh, drop in the bucket to kind of do their part to prevent uh, global warming? Are they becoming, you know, activist entrepreneurs? Or are they rolling with the punches and just saying, hey, the wine's going to change its taste. There's nothing really we can do about it. I don't know enough from personally. I think what I have seen is Bordeaux Council have allowed for the first time, I think in their history, for new grapes to be planted there, which have never been in that mix before. And you have some of the more forward-thinking winemakers starting to experiment with them. Uh, you know, grapes which you might previously have only seen in Spain or Italy being grown in Bordeaux. And so there are winemakers out there who are kind of seeing this as a, well, we've got to adapt to the times. There will definitely, you know, for wine world, be some people who put their feet in the ground and say, nope, I'm not changing at all. <laughs> I can imagine the French would not be so amenable to having some foreign grapes planted on their soil. <laughs> no offense to the French. I could say that my wife is French. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely always going to be pushback, but it's definitely not black and white. And it's, it's one of the exciting things about the wine world in general is it's definitely not a black and white industry. There's, there's innovation to be found everywhere. And that's it this week. Make sure you tune into our new six-part podcast series that we've just launched in partnership with Instagram. It's called Looking Up. Every week we meet founders across six cities in the UK to find out how they've been adapting during COVID. Just search for Looking Up on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure, as ever, to hit me up with any questions or comments. You can get me at daniel at couriermedia.co. Courier Weekly is back again next Friday. We'll see you then.